Again, our passage that we will be looking at today is from Psalm 130. It's eight verses long, so we will read the psalm in its entirety. Uh, Let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. All right, I'm going to guess that the majority of grown-ups in this room uh, feel similar to how I feel, which is that I like Christmas. Now, if you are a child, you are, you are supposed to love Christmas, and I'm not here to take that away from you. I'd like to encourage you to love Christmas. That's wonderful. But um, I know that some of you adults love it, some of you adults really love it, and then we have some Scrooges in the room too. <laughs> there is a lot to uh, love about Christmas. There's also a lot to hate about it, hence, I like it. I like it. But while I like Christmas, I love Advent. Advent is far more than just a preparation for Christmas. It's not just a countdown um, to December 25th. Um, Though it is a great time, I I mean, I really encourage you, especially as families, to be able to to sit and and work through the uh, the birth story of Jesus. Uh, It's all there for us in terms of devotional material, the appearance of the angels, of Mary and Joseph, of anticipating the birth of Christ. That's one aspect of Advent, but I think there's a more important aspect of Advent. And that is, it's primarily, primarily a season to stop and to come face to face with the world as it is. To do what some have labeled taking inventory of the darkness. It's a time to realize like the stakes of why Jesus came the first time and, and how badly we need him to come again to make all things new. It's a time to look at the darkness. We have uh, the traditional Advent candles this year, and you'll notice that three are purple. And and what's the reason that these candles would be purple? And and frankly, it's because it's dark and gloomy. That's the reason why we have three purple candles. And it lights up to the joy candle, which is pink, and then ultimately the Christ candle, which is white. But we first have to look at the darkness. We have to look at the reason why Jesus came into the world. You know, the Gospel of John doesn't have a birth story of Jesus, but it probably has the best summary of Advent in all of the New Testament in John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. I love the season of Advent here because I think we are an Advent church. This is the message that we proclaim every single week. God has to do the work. God has to save. And the hope of our world is in the saving kingdom of Jesus that he ushered in 2,000 years ago when he came into our world humbly, right, in the state of humility, born of Mary. And the hope of this world is that he will bring the fullness of his kingdom to bear, not when he returns again in humility, but when he returns again in glory. And what this means 
is that God's people, most of the time, are awaiting people. The vast majority of the time that God's people have spent on this planet, they are in one way or the other waiting. And so it should come as no surprise to us that God has given us a prayer book, the Psalms, a script, words for us to know and to cry and to pray and to sing. And so, so many of these Psalms speak to that reality that we always find ourselves in in one way or another in every generation. We're waiting. We are a people who find ourselves waiting for God to come. It's as simple as that. And so we come to this prayer book of of prayers of longing and anticipation and expectation. Prayers that acknowledge our hope alone is in the Lord and in his saving hand. And so that's what we'll look at for the next few weeks. These psalms of Advent. These scripts for us as a people who are waiting. And Psalm 130 is such a great place to begin. It's a song of lament, and so that means it's an acknowledgement of how much we need God to save. It's a song of hope, confidence that, yes, we are in great need, but God hears the cries of his people, and he will respond to those cries. Psalm 130 is a great place to begin thinking through the real reason for this season, which is that we are in trouble. And there is absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves. And so God must act, and he has acted, and he is still acting, and he will act again. So our three points this morning from Psalm 130, this great place to begin reflecting on Advent and the next month together, is this this psalm beautifully teaches us where Advent begins, where it brings us, and where it leaves us. Again, we'll see in Psalm 130 where Advent begins, where it brings us, and finally where it leaves us. Now, first of all, Psalm 130 shows us where Advent begins, and hopefully everyone here, before I've said another word, understands where it begins from this psalm. In the depths. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So where does the waiting begin? Where does Advent begin? Well, if we're using the language of Psalm 130, it's in the depths, it's in the deep, it's in the pit. And out of those depths, I cry to you. Growing up in the 1980s into the 1990s, there was something I did not realize uh, watching the various movies of my youth and the cartoons and TV shows of my youth. And, And I've come to find out that I grew up in a generation that has been called the golden age or glory days of quicksand. Quicksand. It seemed like every adventure movie I watched as a kid contained a scene involving quicksand. Like every movie that comes to mind, right? the never-ending story, the princess bride, there is always some plight where the protagonist has to get out of quicksand. So many cartoons I watched involved uh, uh, this, this adventure trying to get through quicksand. And so I think 10-year-old me thought I was going to face a world where there would be this ever-present threat of quicksand. And out of all of the problems I faced in my life, it turns out quicksand is not one of them. At least as it's portrayed in pop culture, it doesn't really exist that way in real life anyway. I asked my kids, they're 11, 8, and 6, just how much quicksand plays a part of their life, and they looked at me with blank stares. They were not part of the glory days of quicksand. One out of every 75 movies in the 1980s contained a scene involving quicksand. There you go. 
Now, I'm bringing up quicksand because that's such a good picture of the depths. It's a good picture because it conveys the idea of sinking deeper and deeper into darkness. That's a big part. But here's the most terrifying part of quicksand, if it was real. You can't save yourself. Now, what's the problem the psalmist is describing? Well, if we can imagine the depths surrounding us, right, walls of darkness, the light above us is just getting dimmer and dimmer. We have this claustrophobia of despair. And so in verse 3, we, we get an idea of what the depths are. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? It's not just that life is hard. It's true enough. It's not just that this, the, the psalmist's circumstances are hard or he's feeling terrible. I'm guessing all of those things are true. It's that he realizes he has a problem that he cannot fix himself. Now, what is that problem? It's a sin problem. It's a sin problem. Have you ever been there? Do you know what it feels like to be in the depths? Not for, for a, a various reasons, but for this particular issue of sin. Patterns of sin that you feel like you just can't shake. Coming to the realization that, that there's just no way that you can clean yourself up if you have to go to the depths of your own heart. Have you ever been there? I hope you've been there. Because we have to go to the depths. It begins in the depths. To go back to the quicksand illustration, you can be the most athletic, physically capable person, but you can't climb your way out of quicksand. That's the point of the depths. You just can't climb your way out. That's hard to hear, and I'm guessing that in this generation, uh, maybe that's a message that's never been harder to hear. Because think of all of the problems that we face, there's some way where through behavioral modification and through change, we can make it better for ourselves. Think of health issues. There are behavioral changes we can make in order to approach viruses, diseases, and cancers and make it more favorable for us. We're told if we just work hard enough, uh, if we pursue the right educational path, that good things will happen uh, with our careers and our financial health. And we would all say, I think that's true-ish. It's true enough. But when it comes to our sin problem, who can stand before the Lord? If God were the one to mark iniquities, who could stand? If I was the one marking iniquities, some people could stand. If you were the ones marking iniquities, some people can, can stand. I am more righteous than a lot of people. And there are other people more righteous than me. And there are other people more righteous than them. But what if God is the one counting our iniquities? No one can stand. No one can stand if he were to take account of our sins. Let me give you a beautiful illustration of this that I've heard uh, it's about 4,100 miles between Hawaii and Japan. Do you know what that means? It doesn't matter how good a swimmer you are. You aren't going to swim from Hawaii to Japan. So you have a guy who can barely swim, and he, uh, he, he embarks off of the shore of Hawaii into open water. He makes it about 45 feet, and he drowns. And then you have a guy who is a college swimmer, and, and he makes it a good like 50 yards, 100 yards out into the open water, but he's getting older and he's tired and he also succumbs to the water and he drowns. You have the Ironman competitor and he's ready to go out into the open water. He makes it about 30 miles out, which is an impressive feat, but he too succumbs to the water and he drowns. The world record for open ocean swimming is about 140 miles, which is absolutely astounding. But do you know what that means? He still has 4,000 miles to go to Japan. 
The guy that can't swim absolutely has no business standing next to the Iron Man at the award stand. Or standing next to the world record holder, but in the end, who cares? They all die. None of us can stand before a holy God. From the most pious to the worst wretched sinner we can imagine, if the standard of righteousness is God, if he's the one that's counting sins, then with the psalmist we cry out, who can stand? No one. So this psalm may despair of our own ability to fix ourselves, but it's ultimately, I think, a song of hope. It's a cry to the one who is able to save. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Would your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas, but not for fairness, not my pleas for justice, pleas for mercy. The psalmist is hoping, waiting, aching to experience God's forgiveness and redemption. So Psalm 130 is a great place to begin to think about Advent because it begins in the depths where we all are. We aren't left there. We aren't left in the depths. And so we turn to our second point. Where does it bring us? And it brings us the saving work of God grounded in his mercy and grace. Who could stand if you count our sins? The answer is no one. And yet the Lord provides another way. He provides a but. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This is the but of forgiveness and redemption. We see this in the New Testament. Paul loved this interruptive, intruding, but things have changed. In Romans 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight of God because the law cannot produce what it demands. All the law does is reveal your need. It reveals your sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, and then you cleaned yourself up. No, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In ourselves, there is nothing we can do. We're stuck, but in God, there is a way. In God, there is forgiveness. Again, we're an Advent church. The gospel itself is beautiful, good news, but it is always judgment on all human works. It's judgment on the ability of ourselves to rescue ourselves. That Christ became man, that he was born of Mary, that he took to himself a true body and true soul, that he was perfectly obedient under the law for us, that he died on the cross, that is judgment on every salvation project. That is judgment on every expression that says, I can do it. You can't do it. He had to do it. And here's the thing. I insist that this reckoning of human inability is not a discouraging message. It's not a dehumanizing message. It's not a depressing message. It's an accurate message that I think depicts the world as it is. But also, it's such a hopeful message. We live in a world that tries to save itself. How's that going? And we contribute to that salvation project. I imagine that a lot of you will begin to watch Christmas movies over the next month. My family will too. And so I have a homework assignment for uh, kids. Pay attention. This is a homework assignment for you. Families, this is your homework assignment. I want you to watch your movies. I don't care what ones they are. One of the princess switches, number seven or eight, whatever's going on these days. And I want you to tell me what is the message of this Christmas movie. 
Notice the messages, because Christmas movies, above all movies, are preachy. So what is the message that they're preaching to us? Maybe it's the, the primacy and importance of love. Anyone disagree with that message? I think that's a great message. We need more love, right? Maybe it's the importance of the family. That's a good message too. Families, God loves the family. God works through families. Maybe at the end of the day, it's the message of peace on earth and goodwill toward men as if we can produce those things. But here's the issue. Uh, it's great that love is so important and central, but why do we love so poorly and how do we stop loving so poorly? It's interesting that Christmas movies and Christmas commercials often highlight the importance of the family. It's better than the commercialism and the consumerism. And yet, how is it that Christmas also reminds so many of us of the dysfunction of our families? Don't we need an answer to that? It's because the good news begins at the end of ourselves. The weight of our sin is too heavy for us to bear. That's where Advent brings us. The psalmist could rejoice in the God in whom forgiveness is found, and so do we. We take heart that God took our sin upon himself in Christ. From the depths, the psalmist cried, and God not only heard the cry from the depths, more than that, Jesus entered those depths. Jesus entered the depths of our woes, your woes, my woes. And he came out the other side. Verse 4 is fascinating because he says, With you there is forgiveness, and the result of that forgiveness is that you may be feared. The result of forgiveness is the fear of the Lord. To experience God's forgiveness is not to take God for granted. It's to grow in awe of him. It's to grow in reverence of him. We are drawn to him. To know the God who forgives, to taste and see his goodness, it leads to God being bigger in your life, bigger and bigger. Our insecurities, our anger issues, our lusts, they all result from God being too small, from God being minimized. God isn't big enough. So what makes God bigger in your life? It's for you to know forgiveness, his goodness and his grace. Experience. The last two family trips that my family took, last year we went to Montana for a week, uh, this year we went to Colorado for a week, and you will, you will stand in these creeks surrounded by mountain ranges that, that literally take your breath away. You know what that means, to have your breath taken away because of the beauty of creation. You're, you're, you're thinking this is the new creation, like a preview of it. It's going to look like this. But here's the thing, if I just describe that to, to you, your breath will not be taken away. If I show a photograph of that same scene, we all know that photographs don't convey the experience that we have standing before things that are amazing. So if I give you a photograph of that mountain range, it will not take your breath away. You have to experience it. That's what the psalmist is saying. To know by the Holy Spirit that you are forgiven, like the depths of you are forgiven, the ugly parts of you are forgiven, your sins past, present, and future are forgiven, only makes God bigger. It maximizes who he is in your life. It's an understanding the weight of our sin, the depths of our needs that we come to realize the greatness of God's mercy. And we love and worship God rightly, and we move toward others with forgiveness, not only because we know what it means to be forgiven, but because of Advent. We know what it took, Christ entering our depths. 
All right, so Psalm 130, where Advent begins, the depths, it brings us to the saving but of the mercy and grace of God, and then finally, where does it leave us? So what are we to do, at least in part, what is the job description for us, and we are to be a people who are waiting and hoping. Two simple and yet foundational ideas of who followers of Christ are. We are awaiting people who hope. Verse 5, after moving from lament to hope, there's this beautiful poetic resolve. It's so beautiful, right, that even um, if you don't know what it means, it still kind of tugs at your heart to be this, this person that waits more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Christian life is one of faithful waiting. It's not hopeless waiting. Uh, It's not waiting for Godot. That would be pointless. It's not uh, apathetic waiting. It's active and attentive waiting like watchmen who are ready to get off duty, longing for that sun to rise over the horizon. Now, one of my favorite photographs uh, that I have is of my daughter and son. They're probably about three and a half and one and a half. And, and their backs are to the camera. And at the time, we had a house that had this big front window. And they're at the couch. And they're waiting for me to come home from work. Like, that'll make a dad's heart feel really good to see their kids spending their time just waiting for me. But I thought, like, what a picture of faithful living. To wait for the Father. Uh, to wait for God to come and save and redeem We've been called to keep our eyes open and bear witness to the one who will return in order to make all things new. We are to bear witness to the one who came, taking the form of a servant, who humbled himself even unto death, waiting for that same one who now has the name that is above every name and will return again. And the hope of this world and the hope of my community, the hope of our society, the hope of my children, the hope of my own heart is wrapped up in what God must do. So what incredible freedom. Because it helps us not to invest too much in this world that's passing away. If my joy and peace is tied up with the state of my financial portfolio, it's doomed to fail, hold those things loosely. If my joy and peace is tied up in my career and the success I experience in my career, there is no recipe for joy and peace there. If my joy and peace is wrapped up in the success of my children, that just reveals a controlling spirit that's, that's also doomed to fail. If my joy and peace is tied up in the state of American politics, it's doomed to fail. Those are all relatively important and virtuous things. And if those take the lead in where we find our joy and peace, then we've fallen asleep on night duty. We stopped stopped waiting. But Advent leaves us waiting and it leaves us hoping. Beautiful closing verses. The psalmist moves from individual cries to confession. God, hear my voice, my pleas for mercy. And then he moves to calling Israel to join him. Join me in the hope. This is where the hope of all Israel is found. For with the Lord there is promise-keeping, covenant-keeping, steadfast love, and with him, this beautiful phrase, plentiful redemption. Not a little redemption. Not stingy redemption. Not God will put up with you redemption, but his redemption is bountiful, extravagant, and lavished upon us. God is the one who's rich in mercy. God is generous in his saving work. God must save, and it's the way that he saves, which is absolutely incredible. God sends his son. 
in an act of amazing and incredible divine generosity in the face of a destitute and impoverished world, unable to save itself, we have the generous, overflowing, abundant love of the Father. For God so loved, he gave. For God so loved, he gave. Advent begins in the depths, and it's precisely there that we see the abundant love of God and his overcoming our inability with the power of the gospel of the Son. Now, as we close right now, I want to leave you with a picture for Advent. If I could give you a picture of what this season is, I'm not going to give you a picture of a stable full of barn animals or a manger. I want to give you a picture of one-sided rescue. Do you guys remember the story that gripped the world for a couple of weeks about 11 years ago when 33 Chilean miners were trapped 700 meters underground for 69 days? The Chilean mining accident, the copper gold mine that caved in in Copiapó, Chile. If you remember that story, right, 33 grown men stuck in a tunnel for 69 days, about eight football fields underneath the surface of the earth. And in many ways, like, it is a beautiful story of the human spirit. 33 men fought hard to maintain camaraderie, and these were men uh, ranging in age from about 19 to 55, ranging in education. Um, you had engineers, highly educated, and you just had basically manual laborers all together in that tight space, rationing food, meant for just a couple of days, and they spread it out over those 69 days. No reports of any kind of fights. This was not Lord of the Flies. These were 33 men committed to can we help ourselves get out of this. And it's so inspiring and it's amazing and it's beautiful and it absolutely preserved them. But they all would have died. They all still would have died. And so what they needed was rescue outside of themselves. They needed something to enter the depths and bring them out. And amazingly, you had a single-man capsule that drilled adjacent to them, and it rescued each miner one at a time on that 69th day. May I suggest to you what a picture of Advent. Even the best of the human spirit, would have, they still would have died. And here was this rescue that came into the depths to rescue them. That's the picture that I want to give you for the next few weeks. What a place to begin meditating together this season on God's amazing, saving work in Christ. To remember it begins in the depths and that God did not merely give his ear, but he gave his son. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that in many ways, uh, this kind of, of stopping to consider the, this season where we talk about what the incarnation meant, where we talk about what it meant for God to become man, to enter into our world, to assume to himself our humanity, our, our nature, in order to save it, in order to redeem it, in order to save a people that cannot save themselves. Lord, on the one hand, would that be old news? Would that be the bread and butter of everything that we do? Would that be the foundation upon which we stand week in, week out, day by day, in whatever places you have called us to be? On the other hand, would you, would you blow us away with the extravagance of your love? Would you blow us away with 
uh, the amazing reality that you have entered into those depths. Would you confront us, Holy Spirit, with the, the depths of your forgiving mercy so that we would experience that forgiveness and respond with the fear of the Lord. That God, you would be the biggest thing in our lives because we have tasted and we have seen your goodness and your grace and absolutely everything else pales in comparison to that sweet bounty that we have received in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, would you do that work among your people? Would you do that work in each heart that's here today? And Lord, would we uh, come now hungry and expectant to receive even more from your hand and from your generosity as we turn to the table. Lord, we thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.